Genre. to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing epimetheus suit from sledgehammer 44 a comic book set in the hellboy universe i i, I don't know how to describe it andrew is that the best way to describe I mean, it <laughs> i mean like we'll be talking about the suit but we're also talking about like the, the soul the soul that ends up inside of a suit yeah, and so like there is the soldier, and he he does have a yeah. name. But, uh, Producer Andrew is joining us, but also like it's uh it's a different soldier depending on which one we're talking about. In the suit, yeah, there like there's two consciousnesses. I I don't know if I've ever pluralized that word, mm-hmm. and it sounds really weird. Yeah, yeah. I, it didn't roll um, off the tongue. <laughs> but yeah, so there's like the, the so there's like two stories, and and we will be exposed to like two main characters two main protagonists embodying this epimetheus suit. power suit yeah anyway we'll, we'll we'll deal with that in a second we're discussing the first two issue uh the first two issue miniseries sledgehammer 44 which had a story by mike mignola and john arcudi and art by jason latour and then also a second three issue miniseries called lightning war with story by mike mignola and john arcudi and art by lawrence campbell and these are stories set in the hellboy universe about a suit of armor that has the soul of a soldier who has passed. Uh, like the soldier died, left their body and their soul is inside of this suit and can power the suit and, and kind of like uh, Iron Man armor, but with no one in it, but a soul in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I'm glad we could clear that up. I will just say, it sounds like simultaneously, a stereotypically comic booky premise and a really weird premise. <laughs> like both of those things at the same time. And for a lot of it, I just kind of had the feeling like this is, this is good. You, you had suggested this. I'd never read it till, till you said, Let, let's do this. And then there's a the last page where I'm like, Oh, this is so much more than I thought it was <laughs> like the last page really like just resonated so differently than the rest mm-hmm. of the story. And it didn't do it in a way that, violated like what had come before it just made me appreciate everything that had come before differently yeah like the when you get to the end of it and so there's like the two separate stories Mm -hmm. that i think were published separately yes um and then collected into this volume but you get to the end of the last page and you're like oh this all came together and it's kind of fascinating because like okay so like the first story is fine it's like three issues Mm -hmm. like yeah okay yeah not not it's even a two sure issue why miniseries I need a and then a three issue miniseries. Yeah. So that after the first two issues, I'm like, I'm not really sure why I need another, you know, three issues. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, this really means something to me. Yes. And and in a way that some of the beats that existed before and seemed to have their reason then, I reassess them. Like I go back and I reassess them. Like they were clearly building to this last page. And there were some moments that had been fine and, you know, interesting enough, but like hadn't been like, oh, you know, this, this is really hitting. And then you get to that last page and you're like, oh, the themes just shifted <laughs> as to what the what the story's about has, has it's now different because I've read this last page. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, OK, I understand something about this story. And it's not like a it's not like a twist mm-hmm. um, where it's like, oh, this changes how I 
understand or right, like we did or an, contextualize everything. An occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge a little bit ago, which is, you know, a short story that has a famous twist in the last paragraph that all of a sudden uh, you have to reassess and, and reexamine everything that came before and you realize it's all different. It's not what you thought it was. Everything mm-hmm. that we thought it was, it was in this, in this story. It's, it's not like uh, you, you've been clued in that, oh, they're dead people or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and instead of having like a story twist or a context twist, it's a motivation twist. It's like, oh, like that's who this character is, right? Like this character suddenly has, I I get who this guy is. And it ends up being a thematic twist where like I appreciate mm -hmm. or I feel like the story was saying something different than what I thought it was. Yeah, and and so it's like very different for like, oh, okay, this is what was motivating the character. This is what they care about. This is why they're doing what they're doing. And so you can still, it's still like enough that you could go back through and have a different experience reading it again, being like, okay, I'm going to understand like what this guy is looking for emotionally Mm -hmm. instead of that big picture of like, Oh, like he was dead all along (laughs) kind of twist. All right. So a little bit of trivia about this. So artist John Severin had discussions with Mike Mignola about doing a world war two story set in the Hellboy universe. And Mignola wasn't sure what the story should be because, um, Hellboy and the BPRD are mostly set after World War II, and the character of Lobster Johnson dies at the beginning of World War II. So in his like expanded Hellboy universe, he had some like pre-World War II stuff they could play with and some post-World War II, but actually in World War II, even though I always think of like Hellboy as like a World War II thing, I know it's not, but like the, like a lot of the imagery is just there for me with it. Um, but there's the Lobster Johnson story uh, called The Iron Prometheus that is set in 1937 about uh, what they call a Vril energy suit. Uh, and so then they just invented the next generation of that suit would be the Epimetheus suit and set the story in World War II. Sadly, John Severin died before the project was completed and it was shelved for some time. And I just want to make a note about John Severin. His comics career goes back to the 1940s. He worked for Timely Comics, Prize Comics, DC Comics, Atlas Comics, Marvel Comics, Dark Horse Comics. The list is long that wasn't even all of them he was famous for his art in war comics um jack kirby who is like the legendary comic book artist he said if you had to find reference photos for war uniforms it was just as good to use a john severin piece of art as to find an actual photograph um and he was also one of the founding cartoonists for mad magazine (laughs) so uh when like mignola hears john severin wants to do a project i like if you have any appreciation of a comic book history, you're like all over that, like immediately. Yes. <laughs> and uh, at the back of the trade paperback that you had lent me, Andrew, there's some examples of some of the John Severin art that he'd been working on. And um, I-, I can't remember how old he was when he died. I want to say he was in his nineties. He still had it. Like that art is still incredible uh, that he was drawing mm-hmm. uh, that that's there in that back. And um, like, I very much enjoyed what we have, but oh man, I wish we could have had John Severin doing the actual art uh, you know for, for the whole thing and that's that's about it for the trivia because this is a strange side story within hellboy like like there's really just these five issues are all that exists with this <laughs> there's no media adaptations and it doesn't like ripple out into the larger hellboy universe that mignola has created at least not yet i mean with with that world it always could you know some you either revisit this or see some future versions of this these kinds of energy suits uh, but that's mostly the trivia yeah there's I, I mean there's definitely like there's connective tissue right mm-hmm. like I think Professor Broom is in this. He makes appearances. And th- so that's, you know, a direct connection. Yeah. Um. So there's definitely like this is in the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not like a weird tangent. It's like, no, like this, this like this definitely happened in Hellboy. Right. World. But it's also it is in some way like a tangent from the Hellboy storyline. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It, it is something that happened over there in a time period that Hellboy's comics usually don't don't delve into. 
as much. Yeah, they're usually, you know, a little bit after yeah. this. Uh, all right. So before we jump into the summary of the miniseries, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we want to thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So uh, the spoiler summary of these comic books in August 1944, a man in a suit of iron armor is dropped onto a French battlefield. He fights his way through Nazis using strange, a strange light blast that destroys anyone it touches. Things look dire when a Nazi robot emerges, but the armored person called Sledgehammer by the GIs who see it eventually is able to defeat the Nazi robot. But then the armor lies still and is not moving. The GIs can't open the suit to help the man they believe is inside, so they try and carry, carry it to safety. Uh, in uh, the next issue, a group of Nazis with a tank try and capture them, but the Americans are able to get a grenade into the tank. One of the soldiers, named Redding, is shot and wounded. The Americans get Redding and the armor to a barn, but are surrounded by Nazis. As Redding is dying, he sort of floats into the ether and sees another person there who says he was in the suit, but now Redding can do it. Redding sees that all his friends will be killed if uh, he doesn't do anything. So instead of moving on, he enters the suit and the suit now steps out of the barn and releases the light blast, which kills all the Nazis. After this, a man and a woman come to inspect the suit, which looks like it is sitting dejectedly in a corner. So like this is after the battle, like now, now, okay, the allies are all here. And a man and a woman come to inspect the suit and it looks like it's just sitting sadly in a corner. They ask about Captain Fields. But the suit just replies that he is not Captain Fields. He is no one. And that's the end of the, the first two uh, issue miniseries. So now the lightning war. Uh, in issue number one, Hitler visits a German prisoner who is a flaming skeleton. And that's really all we get about this character, right? <laughs> this villain. It's a uh, it's it's a Nazi flaming skeleton that that does Hitler's biddings because uh, Hitler said, yeah, it's, that's pretty, you know, oddly, that feels like pretty straightforward for any like sci-fi world war ii stuff and especially straightforward for hellboy yep. uh so hitler tells this flaming skeleton that he has a place for him in the nazi party now we um we go back to see that suit of armor and it's been sitting still while scientists try to sort out what happened to it since the events of that other miniseries we see the soul of redding uh is having some sort of discussion with a celestial being in the ether and um the being tells redding he gave up the infinite by choosing to stay in the suit we find out that the flaming skull guy has used lightning attacks to capture a secret U.S. plane, and the pilot is being held captive. A woman talks to the unre unresponsive suit of armor uh, about how the single life can only be saved by him. This is not about the war. It is not about good and evil. It is about Ma Major Danny Elroy from New Hampshire, who has been captured. The sledgehammer suit agrees to go on this mission, but... The pilot that flies him in uh, on the mission is a Nazi spy who is leading him to a trap so the flame skull guy can capture him. Uh, Elroy, that uh, captured American pilot, is being tortured in a weird mad scientist ways, but he escapes to a secret plane and activates a homing beacon before he is captured again. The flaming skull guy calls the sledgehammer a little turtle and talks about killing him in his shell a lot while they fight. Uh, the U.S. <laughs> sends a fleet of fake balloon planes as well as a real plane 
plane to sneak in and rescue the pilot. So the, the goal is that the uh, Germans will shoot all the balloon planes while this one real plane is able to uh, fly th- fly in and rescue the pilot. Sledgehammer gets away from the Skull Guy and gets Elroy to the American plane, and they get into the air. But just then the Skull Guy returns and smashes the sledgehammer. Um, and there's also a Japanese spy who had some of Elroy's knowledge put into his head by the mad scientist stuff going on flies. Yeah, classic, classic Nazi mad science. Yep, yeah. Transferred some, some knowledge, uh, by, by like, uh, Frankenstein leather straps around the head with some bolts and, and the electricity shooting off. And now knowledge has been transferred. Um, this Japanese spy flies a secret plane into the sky to go attack the escaping plane. Uh, there's a big fight. That looks great on the page. Doesn't summarize well. In the end, the secret plane is destroyed. Sledgehammer defeats the Skull Nazi. The Americans escape. The Sledgehammer suit mysteriously arrives back at the secret base weeks later. Um, It again sits completely unresponsive. And then we get to the last page where Redding and the Cosmic Being have a conversation. Um, And Andrew, can you uh, recap that since you have the page in front of you? Yeah, so I mean, technically, there's two pages. um, Splash page. It's a front and a back. Uh, Well, front and a back. It's actually a turn turn of the page um but yeah so redding is in kind of the cosmic ether and he sees a house and at that house he sees the soldier arrive home injured but but safe right he's returning home the the cosmic entity of kind of the former soldier who was embodying the the suit this is like yeah you did it you saved one guy you saved one single person um and redding kind of like backs him off he's like hey i saved four guys i saved the other pilots (laughs) Um, and the cosmic being is like, but you're still like entangled in all the pettiness of, of human warfare. It doesn't have any real meaning in the, like the grand scope of the cosmos and everything. And so I'm going to recap like the, the exact phrasing of of their conversation on the last page. And Redding says, look, if you're so enlightened, why do you, why do you care so much? Like, why are you so agitated about me caring if you don't care about anything? And, uh, the cosmic being, which I in the first issue, I think he was called like Captain Fields. So, so it, call him Fields. I, I did not catch that the cosmic being is that original soldier uh, in my read. That was the sense that I okay. got. And I've only read it once. Uh, and so I am very willing to be wrong. <laughs> like um, you absolutely probably have the better feel for this. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to remember if that's like evidenced at all in the second. It may be something that I just missed, uh, you know, a comment um, or uh, a text. But box. I might just be, I might just be interpreting it from the first series mm-hmm. where they had a, kind of a similar conversation. There is an exchange so that definitely the, happens as like they pass on the suit. Yeah. And, well, and, and in the first one fields is like, he's very much saying like, Hey, you're dying. Come on, let, let's go. And Redding is like, no, I'm going to stay. And so he kind of takes it on. Um, and I think I'm sorry, we should probably circle back to this after we hit the, the, the last page, like the big discussion yeah. point here. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like it's implied that it was the previous, um, soldier, the, the previous soldier. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so reading, reading, you know, asks him like, why do you care so much? Like if you're, if you're so enlightened, why do you care that I care? Um, and field says, because one oneness should make me happy is that what you think happiness isn't the point when are you going to accept that and through this reading sees imagery of the soldier reunited with his family and uh, the tearful reunion and his last line is not today yeah i i really love that closing um because uh, you know in in the second miniseries we have we we know it's redding in the suit at this point we we saw redding mm-hmm. 
you know, act to save his buddies uh, in that first battlefield. And then as far as we know, like the suit has just sat silently and, you know, yeah, he just hasn't engaged, not answered any questions. Uh, they, they've talked about how the suit can can help in the war, all these things. And the suit sits silently. Uh, and then um, with that one monologue that he's he's given about, you know, this isn't about the war, it's about good and evil. It's about Danny Elroy from New, New Hampshire. Um, that's where we see see the suit actually engage. Um, and this uh, vision that he gets of seeing uh, the Elroy return home and, and everyone being overcome with joy. And, and that was reason enough for Redding to do what he did. But what's so interesting to me is it's, it's, um, it's a little bit like, you know, what is that? That poem or the short story about the little boy with the starfish in the ocean? Well, you know, where like he mm-hmm. picks up one, he throws it back and, and there, there's hundreds of I, thousands. I know exactly of, what you're thinking about. Yeah. Cause I thought about this too, where it's like, Oh, you can't possibly make a difference. There's, there's too many right. of them. And the boy like keeps doing it and throwing them back and saying, well, I made a difference to this one. I made a difference to this one. This story is not saying that because this suit of armor does not go say, I, you know, I'm reading in the suit of armor. It doesn't go say, I'm going to make a difference for every single person I can. And it's, it's enough of a difference in the one. It's like, for some reason, enough resonated about Elroy from New Hampshire that I'm going to help that one person. And knowing that I did that and that he was brought joy, that's it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to go turn around and, and go save every soldier who's who's in a pow camp or anything like that right mm-hmm. so, so- yeah and uh, like the the armor is busted so it's not clear like how it got back to base or mm-hmm. whether or not he could still activate it. right but you know it's torn open but the version of it that we see it doesn't in no way implies that he would even go do that yeah at least you know mm-hmm. for what i've seen uh and yet it's still giving the message that it's not about making the difference to every single person that you could possibly interact with. The message is you made a difference to one person <laughs> and, and that matters. And, and that starfish poem or story kind of says that, but it also says you should be doing this for every single person you ever interact with. <laughs> yeah. Do do it as much as you can. And, and at least you'll help many. And, and this one is really like, he does not care about, the the many he doesn't care about like the massive influence that he had because he you know prevented the nazis from acquiring information about the the plane or anything like that like and it's still making it very clear that he was a hero for succeeding in one mission where his goal was really saving a bare handful Mm -hmm. and and you know like he sacrificed himself for that bare handful and that is heroic that is amazing it's not because he did that over and over and over again it's because he did it one time. Yeah, and I think absolutely there are versions of war stories where it's like if if you leave, you know, any any man is left behind. That's a tragedy. And this one is distinctly saying saving one person is is a heroic act. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we're, we're able to to see both things, right? <laughs> to say that, yeah, this this reading in this suit, if he really does have the power to go save everyone, everyone that he doesn't is a tragedy, but also. The fact that he saving one is a moment of triumph, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just an interesting twist on heroism and war stories that that I had not seen before. Yeah, it's it, it does have a very interesting balance to it, um, and it and it is so different from standard comic book stuff, right? Like like when you're dealing with superheroes in, in comic books, right? You have like Spider Man. And Spider-Man feels guilty for, I mean, everything. And I, I, yes, <laughs> he's con- like, he's perpetually guilty. He's not, he's not the most brooding superhero, but he is the guiltiest. Yeah, he is superhero. motivated by guilt going back to like, Uncle Ben, but then more, more than Daredevil. 
He is motivated by but, guilt. But Daredevil is much, much broodier. <laughs> <laughs> and and I actually – so in the MCU, they do a version of with great power comes great responsibility. And I kind of hate the MCU version of it mm-hmm. um, because I don't think it's a very – I think it's like maybe the least healthy version of with great power comes great responsibility. But it might be more accurate to Spider-Man's actual um, ethos where he says like when you can do the stuff that I can do, when you can, when you can save people and you don't. That means all the bad things happened because of you. That means it's literally your fault. I'm like, that is the guiltiest version of that statement that you could possibly have. Yeah, and it makes me think of, um, the, we've never covered it, but uh, Kurt Busiek has, wrote um, Astro City, uh, which is like his own creator, own world of superheroes that he's done for decades at this point, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty long time. But one of the very first episodes, uh, uh, issues has a character named Samaritan who is a, a Superman analog, but it is just uh, like every second, he's hearing tragedies and choosing which one he has to engage in. <laughs> like there's, there's too much for Superman to do. Uh, and he's, he's having to like constantly be on the move, constantly be saving people, but also calculating where am I most needed and knowing that that means he's not somewhere. Right. And just think about the toll that would take, you know, that version of motivation. Um, and I, <sighs> I, again, I, like I don't, I don't know quite how to how to maybe articulate what resonated with me so much about the end of this, where it is simultaneously saying there's so much that's noble in helping the one and seeing, you know, Redding seeing the joy that Elroy has has, has you know has been preserved, you know that's been preserved because he his life was saved, right? That that is kind of enough to win an argument with a cosmic being <laughs> right mm-hmm. uh but also the the suit does sit there dormant <laughs> for so long in in world war ii right uh and uh i i don't know that the the text itself is really trying to engage with that dichotomy so much as presenting it and saying that there's there's a lot of interesting things here mm-hmm. yeah like it's it's doing such an interesting comparison because like you said it's it's not the starfish story Mm-hmm. Where it's like, well, I'm going to I'm going to help as many ones as I can. I'd say that's kind of like the, the Captain America mm-hmm. message that you see in, in the Marvel movies is like Captain America is going to keep getting up as long as he can save one more person. Yeah. You know, and then when if if he's done saving people, then he's going to stop. And this is not that right. But it's also like this guy is not going to go solve the war. But it's also like the the opposite is kind of the message of of the cosmic being saying like, hey, this stuff doesn't matter, right? Like this is for living people. Mm-hmm. You're not alive anymore. Like don't bother. Like this is small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. And you the one disengage. doesn't matter. You should, yeah, you should you should join the 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 grand beyond and and all that. It's like one person doesn't matter. And and also like being united with the cosmos is like, well, does that matter? And and all those things. And it's like so it's like okay, so it's wrong to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's also wrong to do everything. <laughs> yes. But it's probably good to do something. And in this case, it's kind of just one thing. Yeah. And like you said, like the, the cosmic being is definitely giving the message that it this one person doesn't matter at all. And the, the comic book and Redding are definitively saying he does. But then there's... Yeah you're left with the idea that, well, what about all the other ones <laughs> that, that he hasn't helped? Well, and so and it's, it's the simultaneous celebration of helping one person. And also uh, you're kind of left w- with 
with this hollowness about about how many Redding hasn't has chosen not to help or or for for whatever reason his is whether it's uh depression depression or being so overwhelmed by the number of one people <laughs> you know the the, the mm-hmm. mass numbers that world war ii is is uh you know destroying the lives of so many uh you know that, that can become debilitating to try and think about like the mass uh of of people whom he he could potentially help uh, by engaging uh but but it is the celebration of of the choice having been made to save one mm-hmm. and it like it it does like it creates a lot of like philosophical thoughts in my head mm-hmm. about you know like okay what matters what matters what matters like is it is it one person is it winning the war is it is it right to be enlightened and disengage entirely from you know human meaning or anything like that or acknowledges like oh in the grand scheme of things you know one one person's life it isn't even a percentage, you know, it's, it's an infinitely small impact, mm-hmm. but then you get to the end and you see not only like the soldier returning home, but you see um, members of his family experiencing happiness and joy to see him. And I'm like, okay, so like, it's like, he didn't just make one person happy. He made many people happy and that ripples out as well. And it's like, okay, so an, a single individual is infinitely small but also infinitely large in their impact, right? Like saving one person is infinitely small in the grand scheme of, you know, however many lives, but also saving one person is infinitely large because of the impact that that has across other people and, and the potential generations and, and more additional people. And it's like, okay, so everybody is both nothing and everything. Yes. Um. So I, I just heard about, this this thing the other day, the word sonder. Have you heard about this word? Um, I mean, I feel like I might be familiar with the well, word, but well, I I don't know. So tell me well, about it's, it. It sent me down a rabbit hole. Like I heard someone talk about it and use the definition. I'm like, that's a word I've never heard of before. And I looked it up. And it turns out that it is coming from uh, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which is a website and YouTube channel created by John Koenig that coins and defines neologisms for emotions that do not have a term yet. Oh, okay. So yeah. So new words for it, it's like, like whenever you hear these are things that you feel like you can you know what it is, but, but there's no actual word for it. I mean, kind mm-hmm. of like um, uh, you know, everyone learned like there's the German word Schadenfreude, you know, or Schadenfreude or Freude. I don't know. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I butchered the German pronunciation <laughs> for the, like the the taking joy in someone else's uh, you know, sorrow or the, or their failing. Um, and it's like, oh, well, we should have a word for that in English instead. We've just borrowed the the German word for it. Um, but the word Sonder um is uh, this is like it's. I'm feeling familiarity with this. Like, I feel like I knew this as an, a neologism, but I don't know what it means. The realization that each random pr- passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Ah. When you, when you're like in a crowd and you start to think about every single one of these people is the protagonist of their own lives. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's just like the, a wave of empathy, right? <laughs> a wave of like sense of individuality uh, and, and the dignity owed to other people. Uh, but that is very easy to just treat everyone as, you know, the, the random NPC <laughs> of life. <laughs> uh, and and mm-hmm. Sonder, um, it, it says, uh, that's the one that I heard someone talking about. So I'm, I'm looking it up on Wikipedia, explaining it right now. Uh, and this is the Wikipedia page for that Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which is apparently uh, now going to be a book released from Simon & Schuster in uh, November of this year. Um, 
It says uh, the term Sonder has been appropriated by various companies for use, uh, including a bike brand, a mental therapy marketplace, as well as the title of a video game. <laughs> and it was also the title of a third album from an indie pop uh, artist. Uh, and so it's it's like one of those terms that has like broken out <laughs> of this uh, and, and is like ending up being adopted a, l- a little bit more uh, from what is, it seems like John Koenig is really just trying to, find words and definitions that that align you know and mm-hmm. and give people uh you know words that never existed and i'm sure most of these are, are like it's more the definition is what's going to resonate with people but the the word sonder seems to have broken out a little bit from his website and youtube channel even more i mean obviously this is successful enough and notable enough that it is <laughs> becoming its uh you know book from um from simon schuster soon uh but in some ways this um w- w- this story sledgehammer 44 i think is uh in some ways about sonder uh, about the idea that for uh redding inside of the suit everyone kind of became an npc like like there was just too much the war was too much mm-hmm. there was too much evil there, there the, the issues were too simultaneously black and white but also too complex to know what to do about them uh there were too many people that he could help and it took uh you know i can't remember the name of the the woman who breaks through with you know breaks breaks through his his malaise or his shell or whatever it is uh and gets him to see uh elroy as an individual uh who needs to be helped uh that is able to um kind of like reset um the the recognition of the individuality of others around him where it had been too overwhelming before I, I like that you said overwhelmed because I'd been thinking for a couple minutes. So like I, I, I pieced something together and I don't know if it's good, but go on. It, it's something that I think is part of the story, right? There's like four different conditions and three of them would lead to like no action. Mm-hmm. And one of them leads to action. And so there's a condition of, nothing matters at all in the grand scheme of things. And you get overwhelmed by the, the pointlessness of it. And that's kind of the cosmic beings perspective, right? Everything, everything is so insignificant. Why does it even matter? You know, yeah. the, so like just disengage and, and, and join the void. Yeah. The, the vastness is so, so much that any action, any life, any choice, it just, it's not going to ripple out in any way that's meaningful into the void. Yeah. So, so you can be overwhelmed by meaninglessness, or you can have, well, you can fix the war and you could be overwhelmed by meaningfulness of, you know, like, well, your actions matter so much, right? It's like your, your actions mean nothing. Your actions mean everything. Yeah, where like you both are overwhelmed. The weight of responsibility of you can literally make or break the war, you know, reshape the world, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that can cause uh you know uh, an inability to take take a choice because what if you made the wrong choice and and exactly. you, you've been so weighed down by the sense that your choices are altering the the, the landscape of the world uh you know so, so what if i make the wrong choice i better not it's safer to not make any choice yes and so those are the the two like grand scale okay you can't do anything and then you have two small scale ones and and one is in action it's like well, helping one person doesn't mean anything, right? One one individual, if you save one life, that doesn't mean anything. And that's kind of related to the, the you know, cosmic dis- detachment. Mm-hmm. 
right? It's not going to make a difference. Like, okay, you saved one person, like big, but deal. the war still got, it's I only mean, one it doesn't person. Have to be the, the cosmic level in this instance, because during world war yeah, two, I'm sure it, it could, that that feeling it could even be existed. Of. Yeah, it could be, it, it could be like what you described where it's like, okay, you saved one person, but like you didn't save these other hundred people. And that's, those are numbers you can understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, the a difference of scale of what you're describing, I think is, is, mm-hmm. is the key difference there. Um, and, and so it's like, okay, then, you know, don't save the ones. And then it's, and then it's, you can save one person and that means everything for that one person and everyone they're connected to, you know, like that. And that's the one that motivates him. Mm -hmm. You know, you have like these, these four different versions, like, okay, everything means nothing. Everything you do means everything. Saving one person means nothing. Saving one person means everything. And he chose to do, okay, well, saving one person means everything. This one time I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it my all and put it all on the line for one person and it did mean everything to him and he was totally satisfied and, with that and, and i don't know that he would have been satisfied with any of the others and and the meaning like like that last page that conversation with the cousin being makes it makes it very clear that saving this one like is affecting his sense in the cosmic on the cosmic scale right <laughs> yes for, for and, and so, not like, for the other being like, like the other being is is clearly saying like this this doesn't matter and reading is saying you know what i'm i'm seeing what you see and it matters. Yes. Like the cosmic being is, is trying to point out. It's like, okay, like you're questioning me and you think I'm supposed to be happy. Happiness isn't the point. When will you understand that? And, and Redding says not today. Happiness seems like the point to me, right? I made, I made this guy and his family happy and that's enough infinite happiness for Redding to be satisfied in that moment. Mm-hmm. Ah, you know, that, that has infinite impact to him, even though, it's not it's not as infinite <laughs> as solving the war. Yeah. It's infinite enough. I th- I think I, I said earlier, like I, I couldn't articulate why I, I like this ending so much. And I think you've helped me to to get there like with this discussion. I think it's it, it's coming together in uh, more concrete ways instead of just the, the feeling that I had where it's like, oh, the, you know, that it feels right. <laughs> that, that last page. Well, and- <laughs> And, and I, you know, I started talking about it in the context of like superheroes earlier where it's like Spider-Man will never be happy. Mm-hmm. No matter how many lives he saves, he is going to feel guilty and ashamed for every time he didn't like for every hour of sleep he didn't miss. Right. You know, being out there saving people. And that's not good. That's not healthy. That's like one of the most toxic psychological conditions I can imagine. Yeah. Like it. Is that perpetual guilt for every single person that he couldn't save, which is, which is why I prefer the phrasing of with great power comes great responsibility. Cause like you should do something mm-hmm. to help people, not you should burn yourself out and be miserable day in, day out. Like Spider-Man never seems to get a lot of joy out of saving other people. Yeah. Which I, I think it's very interesting that with Spider-Man, like he puts on the mask and he, he, is so quippy and and quick witted and uh, and is making everyone uh, laugh or or be frustrated by by his by his humor, uh, but that's like the facade <laughs> that he's putting mm-hmm. on. Like he's putting on the mask quite like emotionally as well. Uh, and then and then you have like a Superman who everyone expects him to do everything. He can't do everything. Mm-hmm. He does a lot, and Superman seems to be like pretty positive about he's like i i I am making a difference i'm i'm doing my best Mm -hmm. and well but his motivation is you know do the right thing not make up for failure (laughs) which is uh spider-man's and then batman's like he's motivated by revenge like he's always getting revenge on crime like he's he's angry Mm -hmm. at the notion of crime for taking his parents from him and he's not guilty uh he's just angry at it (laughs) 
Yeah. And and then you have like this one with Sledgehammer. I'm like, okay, like the motivation or like the message is like, don't try to do everything. Don't destroy yourself trying to do everything. But maybe it's good to like put all of your effort into doing something smaller Mm -hmm. and making a really big impact for a couple of people. I'm like, that's the mindset I would like to have. You know, it's like, like I can't do everything for everybody. And like, I work, I work in mental health. Like my job is focused on, you know, people who need help, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I'm a trainer, so I'm not directly working with, with our patients. Most of the time I train new employees on how to do it. And I tell them all the time, like, make sure you disengage, make sure you don't burn out. You will burn out if you let yourself, right? You can overdo it. You can work too many shifts. You can get too invested in the well-being of other people and not tend to yourself. You've got to disengage. You've got to have a healthy detachment so that you can decompress. You can do some self-care. You can relax. You can recover so that you can do it again. And like, that's kind of what's going on here to some degree where well, it's like, it, it's don't, not a healthy don't overburden <laughs> yes. yourself. It's, it's not a healthy self-care that's happening, but it's a version of that. And hopefully mm-hmm. with this finale, you get a sense that uh, Redding is going to be able to function more fully, right? Like mm-hmm. he had completely shut down uh, before uh, re-engaging with the world to a degree because of, you know, any, any of those issues that you had mentioned, like the possibilities that all feel narrowed, narratively valid with what we've been given as to why he would be looking, you know, sitting like a sad robot is <laughs> kind of what yeah. we get. Um, and I, I think I'm, I would imagine that he is going to go out on another mission. Like, the, like this wasn't his last mission. If, if, yeah, if they, if they piece the, the machine back together, close up the armor and stuff, he could go do this again for somebody. And I, I have a memory of, of mentioning this back when Todd was the regular co-host, which means it's been at least two years. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to share it again. But um, there was uh, in the in the 90s, there was a, a crime show, uh, Homicide Life on the Streets with Andre Bauer. And I didn't see a lot of episodes, but I remember seeing one with Robin Williams as a guest star as a parent whose child uh, was killed. And he's in the police station and he sees a couple of the detectives laughing. And they're not like laughing at all about what's happened. They're not laughing about the case itself. They're just having a moment of levity. And Robin Williams, the, the father, like it, this is one of his dramatic turns, you know, when Robin Williams would go do those dramatic mm-hmm. roles, like he loses it and screams about like, there, there's why are you, why is there any joy here? <laughs> like, like, you know, my, my child died. The, the, how can anyone be laughing in this room when you know what's just happened? And Andre Bowers, the chief like pulls him in and he, he kind of says, those men need to be able to laugh or they're all going to die. <laughs> like I know this is your worst day of your life and I am not in any way telling you to not feel what you're feeling, but my men need to be able to have a laugh or, or the weight of what they have to deal with every single day, what they see every day, which is only a, a fraction of what you see every day as the father or, or seeing today as the father of a child who's died uh, would destroy them. Mm. Uh, and I think we're seeing in, in this sledgehammer comic, like some of that weight is been destroying Redding and we're seeing, an avenue that he's finding to be able to, to let lo- let go of some of that weight. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's seeing that, that happiness that he can help with one person, even though he can't help everyone. And he knows like even helping this one person, he knows I can't go help everyone still <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. I can go help more, but I can't help everyone. It's, it's never going to be an option. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, I really like, like in the in this mission, and like, I, I want to like get us away from the last two pages because I feel like we spent 45 minutes on the last two pages, basically, <laughs> um, as like the, the main fodder. But I, I 
like I like how in the mission, like this is the most energized he's been in the entire series, right? Like he is in there. He's like, I am putting my all into this. I am like, he's kind of like lively. He's kind of having fun fighting, you know, black fire skull faced Nazis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, He's like, I'm doing the thing that I feel good about doing and I'm going to give it my all and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to fulfill this mission. And it like, it's so interesting because he's been so blank for so much of the story to have him be like, Oh, like, Hey, like this is our high energy superhero. Um, and this, and I think it's because he's, he's got that motivation. He's got yeah. that intention, even though he hasn't, he doesn't know that he's going to get that satisfaction mm-hmm. at the end. And I, I, I mean, I am not, I want to say very clearly, not a mental health professional. Do not, I, I do not diagnose. I do not know the proper treatments, but it feels like mm-hmm. this is a character struggling with some mental health issues. <laughs> <laughs> and and very understandable ones since you know he literally dies in the first issue <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna say again i'm i'm not a therapist i'm a trainer yeah. at a mental health facility i'm gonna offer the chance that dying probably contributes to, to some trauma yes yes he in, in this fictional 100 ptsd i i'm even without being able to really diagnose i'm gonna diagnose some ptsd happening Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's fair yeah. and uh leading to uh, at least what feels like a presentation of depression right <laughs> he is i mean yeah he's totally disengaged detached isolating um you know the the things that he is displaying if not you know clinically diagnosable it's like these are some unhealthy behaviors he's mm-hmm. not in a good place yeah. and uh both I I like how you describe taking joy. It turns out for him, one form of finding joy meaning is punching Nazis <laughs> and saving someone else. Uh, and it, I think uh, th- there's a reason that still to this day, like Nazis just make the go-to villain uh, where it's like instantly everyone, this is unambiguous. We can take some joy in punching the Nazis. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, like even the uh, the next Indiana Jones, even though they move forward to communists in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, uh, the the onset photos are revealing he's going back to punching Nazis in some form in the in the next Indiana Jones movie that is currently in production, and I would imagine we'll see released next year, but you never know. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the the female officer who helps persuade him. Yeah, she, she's, she's the, the one who has the, the breakthrough. She's the, she's the most important like character in. In his development. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I didn't delve deep into her, her in, in the, uh, in the summary. And, uh, we, we were originally gonna record this episode like a month ago. So it's been a little bit since I read the story. So if you could maybe jog my memory a little bit about some of the specifics we learned about her. Well, I'm just looking through everything. I wanted to find her name mm-hmm. in particular. I see it as Dr. Galaragas, it might be it, there's two, there's a double L, so that might be like a Spanish pronunciation that I'm not sophisticated enough for. I mean, the, the L is usually what's a Galaragas, yeah, some something to that effect. I'm not seeing it in front of me, but that's where I would go. But yeah, so she is the one who is working with Redding in the suit and saying like, okay, here's here's missions, here's missions, and nothing's working, and then she comes to this one, right? And she shows him footage of the pilot being captured. And she explains, like, she gives details. Like, she is clearly trying to motivate him, not by 
the mission, but by this person, right? She points out like, here's who he is. He's engaged. You know, he's got a family. Here's what's going on. So she's, she's pointing out all these details about him. And then she starts talking to Redding and says, look, I don't know if you're human anymore in the suit. I don't know if you have empathy, but maybe you can at least remember what it was like to be human and like to care because he's so disconnected that he doesn't seem to care about anything. And she explains her own history, which, which I think ties into the lobster Johnson story Mm -hmm. um, that you had talked about. And she had been captured and tortured and lobster Johnson saved her. And then she says like, look, someone saved me. You can save him. If you can't get the idea behind some sort of meaning in that, if you can't care about that, then maybe you are no longer human. Maybe you don't have a soul anymore. Um, and that seems to be the thing that clicks for him is, you know, kind of seeing, okay, this is what someone who had been rescued is, you know, what, what is it like to see someone on the other side of being rescued? Yes. And, and I think that's something that, that means something to him. Right. And I, I, I mean, obviously he died and she didn't die, but I think he sees a kindred spirit right in mm-hmm. in what was being taken from her and how she's found meaning again yeah and um and i think it would be interesting to actually like read this like directly tying into the lobster johnson story mm-hmm. um and see how like okay so I've like, never this read is a continuation lobster johnson have you no but my understanding is like um he's he's kind of like a 30s detective mm-hmm. you know kind of pulp hero and I think the Iron Prometheus is basically like finding this suit. And then this suit becomes the sledgehammer. Right. During the war. And so she is involved and connected to that somehow. I know Lobster Johnson was my graduate advisor, Gary Hoppenstan, noted figure in pop culture studies. It was his favorite comic book character was, was Lobster Johnson. He just loved the, and I knew enough. It was, it was like a very pulpy neo-noir kind of kind of character um and i haven't read it i probably should (laughs) but i mean uh gary he he loved like all the the pulp characters like the original pulp characters and he just felt like lobster johnson was a great like encapsulation of a lot of those uh you know the the tropes of that style of storytelling um and and so yeah it it, like you said with uh this story like being largely separate from the hellboy universe it has enough connective tissue of like okay well this character from that other character's miniseries like this side character from this other miniseries is a side character in this series and you know Mm -hmm. things like that that uh don't make it feel like completely separate but it is you know also like this isn't hellboy this isn't the bprd at all yeah it's 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 so tangential but it feels so right in the universe what do you think it is about Mignola's Hellboy universe, you know, this blend of supernatural and I, I mean, a lot of uh, Nazi World War Two era things, even even though the B party is after, like, I think a lot of it still gets rooted in that. That makes it you know, like, uh, w- w- what is the blend that works? The, this mix of world history and and gothic supernaturalism and horror. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that works is that it is drawing so much on existing gothic supernatural like there's so much um lovecraft and Mm -hmm. and poe type imagery um and and then like directly drawing i mean the the like i looked it up the vril energy that they talk about for the suit is based on some other works of fiction um and i think hollow earth kind of stories and and stuff like that so there's all these there's all this kind of like 
weird random stuff and he's like yeah i can i can make i can pull that in Mm -hmm. like i've got this and i'd say the comic books are are pretty different from the movies yeah um where the movies are playing on kind of fantasy understanding and this is and, and like the the comics are not so much fantasy as the movies are right like this is this is weird fiction this is hp lovecraft stuff yeah weird horror uh yeah uh, which i mean obviously still has fantastical elements but like uh the what what's the second hellboy movie the golden crown golden army golden army golden, golden army like that's like the opening i remember was like this feels like the opening of lord of the rings <laughs> yeah it was is much more fairy tale and fantasy mm-hmm. Um, which and, is something that, uh, that like, I know Mignola does play with as well. Like I, I it's, it's mm-hmm. a fairly open world that he's built and he's willing to pull in a lot of different genres. But it, I think he's more likely to like pull fantasy into weird horror mm-hmm. instead of take Hellboy and put it into fantasy. Um, and so like, yeah, there's something about the blend of magic and technology. And it's just kind of like, Hey, there's weird stuff and it's kind of real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, what if all that weird, World War II occult stuff. Uh, occult is is the other word I think that we should probably oh, say yeah. with it is, um, or um, or it's kind of like, hey, all the spiritualism stuff. But like, what if we tip that just a little farther? Yeah, you know the the eighteen hundred spiritualism. What if some of those things were successful? Well, what if so, some of those experiments were successful? And it's a lot of it is kind of like, um, like Tesla kind of technology and, and like early electricity kind of stuff, even in the 1900s, it's like, yeah, but this is based off of like the previous iteration of electricity, right? It should be Tesla coils and, and, and streaks of lightning. It shouldn't be wires and, and, and like, like rubber contained wires. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's raw, all all, like even pre analog, like no digital at all. Right. And it's all, (laughs) yes, you don't have, you don't have a lot of blinking lights, lots of, uh, like, uh, you know, big clicky dials that you gotta, you know, but it's, but it's also not gears. Mm -hmm. So it's not steampunk. Mm -hmm. And so like he threads like a, a pretty fine needle between steampunk and, and, and electricity. You know, uh-huh. where it's like, OK, like it's not gears and and coal and fire. It is electricity, but it's not clean wires and everything like it's 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 electricity in like a very narrow window. <laughs> like there's like a 10 year window <laughs> when electricity was this. Yeah. Well, and it, like it's 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 electricity as a form of magic. Right. Mm-hmm. It's um it's it's the prestige where it's like, yeah, if we have some Tesla coils, everyone's gonna be like, what is this? What is this? And and he's doing that in in World War Two. It's like, why is this still going on in World War Two? That doesn't track. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but that's the right aesthetic for it. Yeah, um, and, and I think it's also, um, like one reason why the Lovecraftian weird horror works is because you know that was the pulp fiction of the twenties, thirties, and into the forties. So like putting mm-hmm. it into that time period, like revisiting that time period with that that uh genre and, and that aesthetic of that genre the, those tropes of that genre like it, it actually feels right because that that was when it was all coming about <laughs> you know? yeah that was when um, that was part it, of the pop culture it connects and i just had a thought and i wonder if like laying over that you know incomprehensible weird horror fiction over the very real incomprehensible horror of world war ii mm-hmm like it creates a gray area or a Venn diagram where you can lay them over each other. And there's so much that like 
it's too much to understand. Like we talked about being overwhelmed earlier. Yeah. Like the the statistics about World War Two are overwhelming, right? The footage about World War Two is overwhelming. There's just so much explosion and carnage and destruction and and so many people, so many lives across the entire planet. Like all of that is so overwhelming that when you lay on this kind of like weird, not totally coherent, creepy fiction, it's like, oh, like that kind of that there's enough gaps in feeling overwhelmed by World War II that it fits. And I don't think I would fit the same in in other eras of history, right? Like you can't just lay over this weird fiction in the 60s or the 70s. Mm-hmm. But somehow doing it during World War II, there's enough that's like, it's too much for me to understand. Maybe some of this stuff was going on. Right? Yeah. There's some sort of, like, I think there's also, there's, there's territory. At this point, it. there's also like enough distancing for, for us as an audience. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where we've, we've moved so far, like temporarily <laughs> from there that overlaying it doesn't feel as transgressive right like I mean, like and it's one of those weird balances like i i remember when we talked about the turkey drop episode of wkrp in cincinnati and how they're making jokes about the hindenburg disaster and it's like oh that once you like know a little more about the hindenburg disaster and you see how close on point those jokes are it feels a little like in poor taste and it's like there's so much death and tragedy in world war ii how can it not feel in poor taste to do these strange fantasy horror elements uh, you know, onto it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the distance because like doing that with the Afghanistan war or, you know, or nine 11, like that would feel much more transgressive. Yeah. I, but I think, I think, um, you know, when you said like, there's so much that how can it not be in, be in poor taste? It's like, it's almost so much that like, you can't have taste. Mm-hmm. Like there, like there's no taste for world war two. Yeah. It's too much. You know, it it is overwhelming. Um, when did when did Hellboy stuff start up? Was that in the nineties? Oh, I know we covered this little, you know, in in twenty twenty in October, the fall. <laughs> Let's see. I think I, I want to say it was the late nineties. I will uh, double check that that um, and so he was I'm starting because like, I I remember saying he's had like a basically a twenty year run of doing it. Yeah, and so feeling like it was like it started twenty years ago, and we're still like, oh, well, we can appreciate it with distance. Like, I don't know if it's just the distance in time. Mm-hmm. You know, because like, well, I wouldn't feel the same way about stuff in the 70s, I think. Right. Oh, you know, and so I'm not sure. Let's see. For character first appeared in 93. Um, and uh, that, that's when you're first. I mean, but that's like the very early version. But basically, the uh, yeah. early mid 90s is when we start to see. Um. Oh, and I, I think another reason that um the Hellboy stuff does fit into it is because they're genuinely like historically was so much weird technology that was attempted during world war two successfully and unsuccessfully. There was so much quasi science as well as legitimate science um, going on. And so like it already dips into the weird factor Mm -hmm. more than, I mean, more than things before or after, right? Like there's so much actual weirdness that bringing in the fictional weirdness doesn't feel out of tone. Yeah. And I mean, this is also like, just speaking of like uh, literary movements, like, like world war two is usually like the transition from modernism to postmodernism. And, you know, with modernism, there's all this detachment and questioning of like previous ways of doing things and authority because 
there's so much emergence of technology that feels godlike and also like world war one it's like well how you know what structures allow world war one to happen and then world war two happens and it's like well okay now we just gotta have to question everything and there's no meaning and we might as well have a little fun while we're here <laughs> is how we end up with a lot of uh postmodernism. but i think there is like this um questioning of well you know these traditional government religious social institutions that were supposed to give us meaning seem to have failed uh us if we've had uh, a a world war and a great depression uh so what else is out there <laughs> that, that that you know could be explored in any way and and then you head with that mindset into world war ii i think there's a uh more you you see like in that's one reason why you see so much weird uh pulp pop culture text you know at the time it's it's like a little spaghetti against the wall uh being thrown of like okay let's just push boundaries and explore more and uh you know and and tell kinds of stories that we've never seen before all right well i did not know we were gonna go there here we are <laughs> I, I i had no idea where we were gonna go yep. uh and i don't know how to really pull us back so we're just gonna wrap up this episode uh great miniseries uh, definitely recommend that if you can get your hands on Sledgehammer 44, that you do so. And it does convince me even more that I need to go more into the Hellboy universe by Mike Magnola, where like we, I, the only things I've read I've done for the podcast and I've really enjoyed all of it. So I should, I should find time to do more. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay and our producer, Andrew is at his minute and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Give me a second. I'm going to read through this stuff and then summarize it more quickly. Oh, right. <laughs> a lot of points.